going to read this morning from 1 Peter again, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 18. And here Peter says, For you know that it was not with imperishable things, such as silver and gold, that, were, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Thank God. Let's come before we now in prayer. Father, we want to thank you that you provide for us so richly in so many different ways in our life. And we give you thanks. And the offering that we just brought is a just a symbol, an indicator of the gratitude that we feel and the fact that our lives are submitted to your Lordship in every way. But Lord, we now we come before your precious word. And again we come and we give ourselves afresh to you. We ask you to be with us as you promise you will and to move within us in the power of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding, but more than that, to give us a desire to be obedient, to apply your word, and to live it through. Lord, speak to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if many of you ever watch the Antiques Roadshow. I don't really watch it regularly, but if it's on and I happen to be around, I have to say I do find it pretty enjoyable because I, I love history and just looking at the various curiosities, even treasures that sometimes the most unusual people seem able to pull out of the most obscure corners of their houses. Well, I do find it interesting, even fascinating at times. But with my, my strange sense of humour, most of you may be able to guess that the moments that I most enjoy in this programme and it's when some obviously well-to-do individual brings in what they clearly believe to be a treasure, only to be told that it's not worth at all what they imagined it to be, even that it's a fake. When they try to keep the smile on their face, even though you can see the pain in their eyes, when they mutter, oh really? <laughs> And all the time, you can almost hear their teeth grinding. Well, I'm sorry, but I have to admit that this does appeal to the darker side of my humour. However, 
just to try and vainly save whatever reputation I have, I have to say, I honestly do actually enjoy it even more when some so obviously not so well-off person brings in something that's been lost, you know, ignored, forbid, forgotten in a dusty corner of their home and then finds out what perhaps has been a doorstopper is in fact a hidden treasure. I enjoy that more. I really do. Well, that's kind of what I want us to look at now this morning from this passage in First Peter. And what I believe are too often forgotten treasures of the Christian life. Three, if you like, precious jewels that are so often today ignored, misunderstood, but that are still precious jewels in that holy, transformed life that we looked at together in our last look at First Peter, and that is God's will for each one of us. Now, we're going to look at each of these treasures in turn, but this morning, this morning, we're going to focus on one of them, on the most precious of all. More precious, we're told here, than anything on this earth, and as precious as anything in heaven. And this is, of course, the blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ, which is the evidence, which is the ultimate symbol of Christ's death on our behalf. The blood of Christ, which is the reason for our holiness, that focus last week. Why we can be holy. This is why we can be holy, because of that blood of Jesus Christ. Because you see, the blood of Christ has two very definite and dramatic effects. First, it deals with our sin. It deals with our sin. There in verse 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without debt, blemish or defect. Now what this is, is getting at, as far as our, our personal, our individual sin is concerned, is that Jesus Christ was the price paid to set us free from that sin. To set us free. The very word that's used here to speak of what Jesus did and what he achieved for us, that word redeemed, was the word that was used at the time of Jesus for the ransom paid to win the freedom of a slave or a hostage. And that, you see, that is what Jesus was. He was the ransom paid for our sin. His sinless, perfect life, that lamb without blemish or defect, he was offered up to pay the penalty of our sin. Yes, the offense that our sin caused to our holy God, a sinless God, a God who made us originally with the capability to be without sin, the penalty, judgment that that sin brought upon us, that has been dealt with. That has been broken in Jesus. And it's not only the penalty of sin that's been dealt with, but the power of sin also has been broken in Christ. It's been broken, of course. 
Sin still does have a, a limited power, even in the lives of those who love Jesus and what's left in each one of us of the old man, that old self. So we can then still be tempted if we choose to be or if we don't take hold of the protection that is ours in Christ. But in Christ, by his death, by virtue of his sacrificial blood shed for us in him, Sin's dominating power, sin's compelling power, Satan's dominating and compelling power has been broken. It's like as, as if the back of sin was broken by the cross. So because of that, there's, there's still life, there's, there's still power to some extent in sin, but the real power of sin has gone. It's gone. But this doesn't only affect our lives as individuals. That's the, the main theme of the, the Bible's teaching. That's what you find again and again throughout the New Testament. But it's not just that. Look again at what it actually says here in verse 18. Effectively, that by the precious blood of Jesus, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Now, to illustrate what this at least means, it, it may mean more, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but to illustrate what this at least means, then let me just share something with you that was shared with me at a meeting that I attended maybe 25 years ago now. And this was shared with the people there by Stan Smith, who was at that time a, a team leader in Malta House, and that's an addiction centre in Edinburgh. It was a meeting in a university where the, the subject being discussed was alcohol and students, and I was on there as a, a chaplain at that time. And it covered most of the usual topics about how bad the problem is and how it might be dealt with, etc., that type of thing. But then he shared something at that point that has, has stuck in my memory ever since, maybe because it was, it was something personal to him, the personal nature of it, maybe. And it was... He shared that, that one of the most depressing things that he had found in his career was during his early social work days while doing a project in a Glasgow housing estate. And it was the fact that by the age of five, many children had already absorbed, they'd imbibed, they began then to conform to patterns of life, ways of thinking and living that would rule and dictate their future. An attitude towards alcohol, an attitude towards violence, towards crime, towards women, an attitude towards themselves. You know that anybody from here, anybody from this family is bound to be a failure. We can't be any better. Something that destroys self-esteem and becomes, in effect, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You do, though, don't you? You do see this kind of thing in families. Problems. A lifestyle that passes itself on from generation to generation. And it does seem to get so ingrained that you believe that it just cannot be any other way. So you believe that, that this is what I am. This is the way we are. And I just cannot break free from this. My mother said to the family, well, were just like this with regard to alcohol. They, they drank because they had problems and they had problems because they drank and it was just an ongoing cycle and one by one members of the family seemed to get dragged into it and it seemed you know, as if there was nothing that could be done about it. It was just 
the way we were. But you see again what it actually says here. It says, Jesus Christ is able to redeem us from the empty way of life handed down to us. That Jesus Christ, he is able to break the chains, break the habits, break the lifestyle, break the sin that holds us. And that so often is passed down from a family from generation to generation. And you know, I know that to be true because it actually happened in my experience. When I trusted in Jesus Christ, he broke the chains of sin in my life. He broke the habits, the lifestyle, the ways of thinking that were mine, but that also in a sense, to an extent, have been passed down from generation to generation. Do you know, he can do exactly the same for you. For maybe you're here, I don't know, and you want to believe in Jesus. In many ways, perhaps you're convinced about Jesus. You know who he is, you believe who he is and what he's done. And you want your life to be changed. You want to be transformed. But somehow, you just cannot believe that it can actually happen for you. You know, your, your lifestyle, your habits are so far away from Jesus at the moment. And they are so ingrained into you, so much a part of who you are, that you cannot believe that even in Jesus, that anything could be done, that you can be changed and transformed. That's just not so. Let me tell you that, that is a lie of the devil. Jesus Christ can come into your life and can change your life. He can change your lifestyle. He can change your habits. He can change your whole way of thinking because Jesus Christ on that cross broke the chains of sin, broke the power of sin. And as you trust in him, as you put your faith in him and what he did for you on that cross, he can break the chains and power that bind you to. Now, this doesn't mean, let's be clear, that everything in your life will be sorted out in an instant. This doesn't mean that from that moment on, life will be plain sailing for you. And this doesn't mean that you cannot go back to living in your old ways. You can't go back and make the same old mistakes all over again. Of course you can. Of course you can choose to live like you used to live. Though once you know Jesus, you have a conscience about this like you never used to have, never had before. But what knowing Jesus means is that you are set free to live otherwise. What knowing Jesus means is that you can now choose to live otherwise. You can choose to live a life that pleases God. You can. But the blood of Jesus doesn't only deal with our sin, it also affects are standing before God. As verse 21 says, Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now you see, it, it talks here. It talks of us. Because of Jesus, having faith and hope in God. That's what Jesus does. Now you see, most people in our world if they ever think about God, either have a misguided optimism about him 
They think in some way that God's their pal, but for no real reason, you know. Or people fear God. They don't quite know why, but, but they fear God. Now, this perhaps happens less often in, in the days that we live in, when in various ways men have managed to distort and diminish the view of God, to make him into a kind of always accepting, popular, cuddly kind of God. But, you know, this fear of God, this was and is actually a far healthier view of God. For if we are living in our sin, if we are not trusting in the price Christ paid for our sin, and so if one day we are going to have to give personally an account for our sin to God, then we are right to fear the God who is the judge of all the earth. Indeed, why, just a few verses earlier here in verse 17, it actually says that, that even Christians who aren't walking close to God, who aren't striving to live that holy life that they should, it says that they too should fear God. Because one day they will have to answer for their sin, either in this life or in the life to come. Even Christians, but this though we need to set in a wider context and although there will be a judgment for Christians, and though this will matter and that this should keep us on our toes, yet for the Christian, through the blood of Christ, there's always a way to get right with God now, right now. 1 John 1, 7 and 9, it says, the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from sin. And then it goes on, if we confess, that is, if we bring our sin before God through Jesus, admit our sin, turn from our sin, then it says he is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Yes, but also, because of the blood of Jesus, we know that no matter what, that in eternity, in eternity, that the God who loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die for us, the God who loved us so much that he held nothing back but gave everything in Christ to save us, we know that this God will never let us go. Never. And so we stand secure for all eternity in Christ. We place our faith and hope in God, and it is a faith and a hope that will not disappoint us. For again, the God who paid such a price for us, the precious blood of Christ, this God will not let us go. Now there are many other things I could say and verses I could use to underline just how significant the Bible sees that the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the cross of Christ actually being. Like, for instance, in Hebrews 9.14, we're told that by the blood of Christ, our consciences are cleansed. In Hebrews 10.19, that through the blood of Christ, we can gain access to God in worship and prayer. In Revelation 12.11, that by the blood, we're able to conquer the accuser of the brethren, the evil one who tries to bring us under a false guilt. And we can go on and on. And here in verse 20, when it talks of the fact that, that Jesus was chosen from before the creation of the world, 
but was revealed in these last times for our sake. You see, what this is getting at is that the cross was no accident. No accident. No, Jesus was God's chosen way from before time began for dealing with the sin of the world. And so you see, it's the cross that stands at the centre of human history. It's the cross of Christ that is the key moment, the focal point, the most important event in the whole of human history. It's that cross of Christ. Now that being said then, so it saddens me when the cross and the blood of Christ shed for us, with all that cost and all it means, it saddens me when that is forgotten or belittled, undermined and ignored. Something that I think is, is increasingly happening in, in much of modern Christianity today because, you see, the cross is often not, I believe, in Christianity in our time, what it should be. Because it doesn't dominate our agenda. It doesn't dictate our thinking in the way that it should. The cross doesn't stand at the heart of the church's life and ministry as I believe it should. Now let me give you just one example, and this is something I'll continue to seek to fully walk through, but these are the conclusions I've come to at this moment in time. And that is, there is a, a teaching around today, maybe not as prevalent as it was a few years ago, but it's still around regarding something called ancestral sin. And basically, it's that because of things that your ancestors have done, and this ranges from things from sexual sin and crime, involvement in the occult, in Freemasonry, etc. But that because of these actions of your ancestors, you then are under the judgment of God, even under a curse from God, as a family. And that means basically that you're handed over to Satan and his demonic powers, handed over in such a way that they've got a controlling influence over your life. To such an extent that even when you become a Christian, you still need special ministry of one kind or another to deliver you from these things. Now here it does, it has to be said that there is clear teaching in the Old Testament on this. Even at the heart of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 4, it says, You shall not make for yourself an idol of the fo in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water, on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I could say again here, as I did last time, that the problem here is new covenant believers living under old covenant promises, blessings, and curses. But you know what? It's not even that. It's not even that. Because even in the Old Testament, there's another dimension to this. For listen to what it says in Ezekiel 18, from verse 14 on. It says, Suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits. And though he sees them, 
He does not do such things. Will such a man live? Now this is the Lord's reply in verse 17. He will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live because his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, it goes on, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is right and just and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. See, what this is telling us is that when there is repentance, when there is a turning from sin back to God, so then at that point the chain of sin is broken. And the judgment, the curse it brings, is lifted. And of course, that's just what you'd expect. You wouldn't expect God, upon repentance, to say, oh, that's okay, you've repented, but I'm still going to allow a curse to be kept on you because of the sin of your father or grandfather. I'm still going to have Satan allow him to have a dominating power over you. That's just not God. That's not grace. Now, if this is true in the Old Testament, and I believe it is, then how much more true it is in the New. The cross of Christ breaks the curse of sin, breaks the power of sin. I mean, it says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You know, I, I sometimes wonder, does that actually mean anything anymore? Does it mean anything? It does. But I think that many Christians don't realise that it does. And because of that, they don't live enjoying all that that means. Now, I, I want to be clear in what I'm saying here. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that our past with all its hurts I'm not saying that our family's past and, and what we've imbibed and what's maybe been ingrained into us as part of that over the years. I'm not saying that this will not have an influence upon us even in Christ. I, mean, I touched on that earlier. But what I am saying is that these things cannot dominate us, cannot compel us, they cannot rule over us in Christ. Because we have been set free in him. And in him we have the resources to deal with all these things. And of course, we've got to work at it. We've got to work at this and sometimes we don't. We've got to deal with things that perhaps we don't want to deal with. We've maybe got to let go of things. Let go of anger and bitterness and resentment that perhaps we don't want to let go of because we are so angry. So we maybe do, yes, we need counsel, we need ministry, we need prayer to help us to lay hold and, and to enjoy to the full the victory and all the resources that are ours in Jesus Christ. But to imagine that a Christian can be held 
under Satan's curse. To imagine that a Christian in some way is under God's judgment because of family sin, even in Christ, that, my friend, that belittles the cross. It belittles the blood that was shed. It's going back almost to a kind of pagan superstition. And it just won't do. For any right-thinking, cross-centered Christian, it just won't do. The cross of Christ needs to stand at the center of our life and our faith. The blood of Christ has to be seen as being more precious and more powerful than anything else on this earth or even in heaven. If we're going to be truly biblical Christians, this has to be our standpoint. And I pray that in an age where compromise is all around us, that that's what we'll determine to be and where we'll determine to stand here. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you that on the cross you broke the power of sin. That on the cross you paid the penalty of sin. And that because of the cross and in the power of the Holy Spirit that you give us the resources that enable us to live in that victory, to lay hold of that power. Father, you know that for some of us there are things that have to be dealt with and sometimes there are deep hurts. But Lord, we believe that you have the grace. We believe that you have the love. We believe that you can come into our lives. You can change our hearts. That you can work within us and make us whole. Lord, that's your promise. Help us to take hold of all that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Amen.